Would you join with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you are the everlasting God. You are the creator of the ends of the earth. You created light and separated it from the darkness. You created the heavens and separated it from the earth. You created dry land and separated it from the seas. You created the plants and separated them into their own kinds. You created the sun and the moon and separated them to rule the day and the night. You created the creatures of the sea and the creatures of the air and separated them into their own kinds. You created the creatures of the earth and separated them into their own kinds. All of these things you created you saw were good. And finally you created mankind and you separated him out that he might have dominion over all the living things on the earth. And Father, we say this because we praise you for your good ordered creation that was put into place so that we might glorify and reflect your character on this earth. You built an environment where we could thrive in right relationship with you and your creation. Father, we regret and are saddened that the sin of our first father and mother, sin that we have all participated in and carried forward, has brought chaos, destruction, and death into the good world you created. We repent for doubting your goodness and plan for us. We repent that we have made ourselves into God. We are sorry that we have joined with the serpent, with your enemy, the great dragon, Satan, in rebellion against you. Father, you alone are worthy of praise, honor, and glory, and our very lives, because you have not held this treason against us. Your mercy and your loving kindness is the only reason we have life. And we thank you, Jesus, that you came to pay the cost that we deserved, and that you defeated our ancient foe by the blood you shed on the cross. And Holy Spirit, we rejoice in the restoration of creation. We see this process beginning in the church, you have called the church out of creation to be a people set apart, a people separated from the world for service to you. And we pray now for the local church. We pray for Outward Church in Salem Heights. We pray for the fellowship at Bend and for Rogue Valley Fellowship. We pray also for the members here at Mission Fellowship. We pray, Father, that you would set us apart for your service, that we would be separated from the world as a people who glorify you. We pray for faith and for faithfulness. We pray for endurance to continue to battle our enemy until he is ultimately defeated. We pray that you would renew our strength. May these churches faithfully preach your gospel and pray for one another so that when the day of evil comes, having done all, we can stand fast on your promises to us. May we delight in doing your will, Father. And for those in our congregation fighting sickness, especially for the parents of little ones who have been sick off and on all winter long. We pray for endurance and for healing for those little kids. May we find ways to love each other through illness and point each other back to your love. This morning, Father, we also lift up all of the expectant mothers. We pray for health and for energy. And Father, we also lift up any families that may be struggling to become pregnant or may even be dealing with miscarriage. May they know that they are not alone, that you are near to them, and this church desires to love and care for them in the midst. Give us grace to walk in faithfulness with each other. Father, you have been faithful to you in your promises to us. Grant us faith by your Holy Spirit to walk in faithfulness to you. May your gospel be proclaimed in the preaching of your word now, and may you receive all of the honor and glory that you deserve. In the name of our conquering King Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. You can have a seat. Grab your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 12. It's good to see your faces this morning. Well, in the realm of movies, it has become very popular to love a good prequel. There are prequels for X-Men, Spider-Man, Batman, the Marvel Universe, Star Wars, Star Trek. There are even prequels that fictionalize the background for Jane Austen, of all things. We love a good prequel. 
And perhaps this is because it makes us feel like we have the inside scoop. We are in the know. Or because now we feel more in control of the storyline when the current narrative in which we find ourselves is too stressful. I know people that think that they exist more in the Marvel Universe than they do in their own time. <laughs> I won't mention you. I've even found myself looking for a prequel in real life anytime something stressful happens in the world. For some reason, it puts me at ease to possess as much information as possible about the history of Russia and Ukraine or the various geopolitical stories of intrigue that have led to the world order we now see. We love a prequel, especially when it captures and explains a seminal event in the history in which we find ourselves. Movies that attempt to explain previously unknown angles of, say, World War I or World War II, they seem to pull us in more and more. This morning, we find ourselves in a masterfully crafted prequel that would have served the first century church well in keeping them strong amidst persecution and martyrdom. These peasants and nobles of the day were going about their daily lives much like we do amidst a world in chaos that felt as if it would break under the shifts that were occurring. Sound familiar? And they, as often as we do, most likely wondered why it felt as if they were collateral damage in a war that they could not see. Some wars, as what we see in Eastern Europe right now, are very present. Other wars are harder to see sometimes. That's why we have the phrase Cold War. And so Jesus, through, the, through John the Revelator, will paint the background of what is occurring behind the scenes of the war that they in the first century and we today feel but cannot see. But before we move forward into that idea and deal with our text this morning, let's get our bearings and remind ourselves of where we are at in Revelation. We've been in Revelation for a while. So let's take a look at the structure here. If you want to, you can take a picture of the screen. It might take a little while for you to jot this down. It'll also be online later. The first thing we saw was an introduction to the book where we realized it's not a revelation of future events, but an uncovering of the full understanding of the glorified Christ and his place amidst his new covenant people. That's what it's revealing. And then we saw the letters to the seven churches that called them, and therefore us, to sanctification and encouragement. And it's from these letters and the themes stated in them that the rest of the book is rolling out. And then the foundation was set in chapters 4 and 5, where we saw the enthronement of the paradoxical Lion of Judah, but he was seated as a lamb that had been slain. And this reality is the cornerstone of all the rest of the visions, this enthronement. And then we moved into the seven seals and seven trumpets. And in each of these, we started to see the structure of Revelation and this idea that we've discussed many times by now and will continue to discuss, this idea of progressive recapitulation, in which we're seeing the same events from different vantage points. That's why I like the idea of a prequel. You can think of a movie camera looking at a different event from different angles. Okay? Or for those of you that are a little younger than me, YouTube channels looking at the same thing from different angles. And now we've stepped into the seven visions. They're not as popularly known as the, the seven visions, as the seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bulls are, but these are seven visions. And each of these recapitulations, we've seen the church age from a different vantage point. The first one was of martyrdom and protection of the saints, and then the vantage point of God's wrath. And now we've stepped into the seven visions where we're again seeing the church age that lasts from Christ's ascension and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit through today and until the second coming of Christ where he initiates resurrection and judgment. That's called the church age. Everybody say the church age. First to second coming of Christ. But this time we will see the church age in our text today from the vantage point of the spiritual warfare that rages and plays out in the world. And this is what we'll see throughout the seven visions before we get to the seven bowls. Now, like any good prequel, this view will look to the seminal event that has formed the church, which is the crucifixion, the resurrection, the enthronement, and the ascension of Christ. It's what we celebrate every Sunday. And to give it even more layers and weight and to link it intimately with the redemptive work of God throughout the historical narrative of his people, John the Revelator will use Exodus imagery to present the new covenant church that they are, we are, the protected people of the Exodus God. The protected people 
of the Exodus God. That's who we are. We are the protected people of the Exodus God. Many of you with church history, if you grew up in the church, you remember the Exodus story as just yet one more story. Another felt board story for you to practice once in a while. Maybe you even watch the old Moses story every Easter. Well, I guess most people don't watch TV anymore, but maybe you guys, I don't know, have the DVD? Even that's old. Wow, I sound old today. But we think of the Exodus story as separate, as this miracle, but not really attached. But what we will see is just like the crucifixion and resurrection is the seminal event for the New Covenant Church. It is linked intimately to the Exodus and to God's people. So let's now step into our text and see what we can unpack to open our eyes to the spiritual warfare that is occurring in our midst. Let's go ahead and read chapter 12, and we're going to start and cover the the text that Nick uh, taught on last week just as context and then move into our full text, and we'll cover basically the whole chapter. Chapter 12, verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This is a hellacious image when you picture it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And Nick even touched on the Exodus imagery that was already there. And now our text for this morning, starting in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. The first three verses in our text this morning paint for us the heavenly dismissal of the slandering adversary of the Exodus God. The heavenly dismissal of the slandering adversary of the Exodus God. We see this in verses 7 through 9. Now the word sign that we saw at the beginning of chapter 12 is only used three times in Revelation, in 12.1, 12.3, where we, we already read, and then again to start the seven bold judgments that will come after the visions. It means to see something miraculous, something that has special meaning to which God's people are to pay special attention. Many commentators will state clearly that chapter 12 is really the hinge point of the book. It is the core, the understanding of everything else that's going on in the book can be wrapped up in what's occurring here. And so last week, Nick taught through the first six verses that introduced two characters to us, the woman in childbirth and the great dragon. Now, a third character was mentioned, the child whom she birthed, but this prequel is not focused on his earthly existence because, as we have seen in our text, the focus of the visionary camera, if you will, 
is the scene in heaven. And so this chapter is actually three different camera angles upon the same event. Verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 12, and verses 13 through 17, probably how you even have them broken up in sections in your Bible, these are all the exact same event caught from different camera angles. It is recapitulation very quickly, if you will. And so in this second camera angle of chapters 7 through 12, we see that a battle, a war, arose in heaven, and there seemed to be two commanding generals, Michael, the archangel, and the dragon. If you ever go on to Wikipedia and you nerd out like me and looking at a battle or a war, you'll see off to the side there's always a statement of who the commanding general is of each army, and that's what's going on here. Michael, the archangel, and the dragon. And each of them, notice the language, possesses or has charge over a group of angelic beings. It says, his angels. Now, Michael was introduced to us in the apocalyptic literature of the book of Daniel. Uh, you can maybe remember some of these statements. This is from Daniel 10.13 and Daniel 10.21. Daniel 10.13, uh, an angel comes to Daniel and says, The prince of the kingdom of Persia, another angelic being, withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, an archangel as we would call him, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And then Daniel 10.21, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And Daniel gave us the idea of this interaction between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm and how they play with one another, the kings of this earth and the angelic beings of heaven, right? They play with one another. And so Michael is one of these archangels. He was also spoken of as high ranking in terms of being a spiritual being who's in charge of protecting God's people. This is Daniel 12.1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. If you want more exegesis on what that means, you can go ahead and go back to our Daniel teachings and read through that. But this idea is that the spiritual warfare has been raging since the original rebellion against God's rule by Satan. But this war seems particularly important because this ends here in chapter 12 of Revelation with the dragon's defeat. But he's not destroyed here in our text. The defeat will come a bit later, as we will see in Revelation. But this defeat here, this partial defeat, this winning of the battle, so to speak, it has two outcomes. The first is that he is removed from heaven. And specifically, what I would say is that he's from the, removed from the heavenly council that resides amidst the throne room of God. You can imagine a throne with uh, the, the uh, counselors of the king around them, right? And this is the idea of the throne room of God. The book of Job gives us insight on this idea. Uh, would you turn with me really quickly to Job chapter 1? Go ahead and go to your Bibles. We'll move back to Revelation, but go to Job chapter 1, starting in verse 6. I mean, amen if you're there. Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, that is an idiomatic way of saying these angelic beings, these angelic counselors, came to present themselves before the Lord. Behind that is the name Yahweh, okay? And Satan, or Hasatan in the Hebrew, which means the adversary, also came among them. Yahweh says to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered Yahweh and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then the adversary answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, I'd like to reread this with a really high-pitched, whiny voice, right? Because that's who Satan is. He's a slanderer. He's a whiner. He is annoying. And yet he's in God's presence, okay? The Bible gives us this understanding that a primeval rebellion occurred among the created angelic beings somewhere surrounding the creation of the cosmos. This is why the serpent is referred to as that ancient, 
or primeval serpent. And at that time, Satan was defeated in one way, a kind of demotion, if you will. But he was still allowed interaction with God. He was no longer the prince cherub, the highest of the high angels, as the Bible says. But he was demoted in a sense. And he was still allowed this interaction with God and the rest of the angelic council that surrounded God. And this served God's sovereign purposes because there was one who gave an option other than to follow Yahweh. But the event that Revelation 12 is capturing has done something different than just that demotion. And it has massive cosmic implications because the second thing that happened was that he was thrown down. Not only was he removed from this council and specifically thrown down to earth, What's funny about this language from Revelation 12, if you'll go back there, is that even in our postmodern world where we have been to the heavens, if you will, in space travel, we still very much think as heaven as up there. How many of you still refer to heaven as up there, right? And we refer to hell as down there, right? Now, the idea, what's funny about this language is that even within this idea where we've, we've still continued to accept the Jewish cosmological layout is that the Bible is actually telling us it simply has to do with presence or lack of presence of God. What we need to recognize is that when the Bible talks about heaven, it is referring to the abode or the throne room of God, the presence of God. You see, being in heaven is not getting to do whatever you want for eternity. It's not eternal retirement where you get to golf all day, right? I'm not putting down golf, by the way. What it is, is being in the presence of God, amen? Amen. And so when people hate being in the presence of God's people or the presence of God's word or the presence of God, and yet they think they go to heaven when they die, it's like, what? To be in the presence of God is heaven. You know what heaven practice is? It's to be in the presence of God's people. That's where his spirit dwells. And God's word. Friends, if you don't like God's word and you don't like God's people, then heaven is not the place you're going to end up. You don't earn it, but it's not where you want to be because you don't want to be there now. Does that make sense? Yeah? And so heaven is the abode or throne room of God, the presence of God. And so by being removed from the presence of God, Satan is also cast down to earth, because really that's the other option. And this is the idea that's been painted throughout Revelation. You have the heaven dwellers, and you have the earth dwellers. Not that the earth is bad. This isn't a Gnostic idea where the material is bad. Uh, but this is kind of the picture. You either want to be with God and enrolled in the throne room of heaven, or you're going to be simply enrolled on earth, and that's it. And this is very helpful to us in interpreting what this is symbolizing because the Bible has pictured this same kind of demotion and dismissal before. In the Old Testament, for example, the prophets, both Isaiah and Ezekiel, capture the fall of the heavenly archangel at the beginning of creation. Satan himself, otherwise known as Lucifer. And they do so throughout the prophecies that are speaking about earthly rulers. Remember that the created earthly realm and the eternal spiritual realm are tightly linked. What occurs in the heavenlies plays out in the earthly. And what happens in the earthly has behind it an eternal meaning and background. So just as an example, you might still be in Job or if you're in Revelation, turn with me to Ezekiel. Let's go to Ezekiel, look at one of those examples. Go to Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 12. Now, you're going to hear about the king of Tyre here, but notice as I read through that there are a number of characteristics of this person that's being mentioned. There's no way that the human earthly king of Tyre could have, uh, could have as, as their own. And so there's this intermixing of the king of Tyre on earth and the heavenly demonic, uh, if you will, with Satan still in the presence of God at that time, the demonic influence behind him, okay? So 28, starting in verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Is that possible for the earthly king of Tyre? No. So he's talking about Satan here behind the king of Tyre. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. In other words, he was important. 
You were blameless in your ways. That's how Satan started. From the day you were created, till unrighteousness was found in you. That's his rebellion. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. Now we move back into the earthly realm. This king of Tyre was huge in the business world of the time, and in his trade, he was unrighteous. And then he says, so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, speaking back about Satan, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you. And I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. And you have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever." This idea of casting down, of removing from your place of authority because of rebellion against the true authority who is Jesus Christ. Ezekiel is prophesying against the king of Tyre who is idolatrous and rebellious against Yahweh's reign. But to do so, he's using the image of the rebellious angel that was cast down because of his rebellion in the primeval world, if you will. And so if this spiritual dismissal or demotion happened once at the creation of the cosmos, We can see that John is now using this imagery to tell us a similar and yet more pronounced event has happened at the recreation of the cosmos. And this recreation has been inaugurated because of the death, resurrection, and enthronement of Jesus Christ. Now this fits so well in what we have seen in Revelation and we will see further. For this dragon is also called, back in Revelation 12, if you'll go back there with me, Back in Revelation 12, there are two names attributed in verse 9. Take a look at 12.9. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called, what are those words there? Devil and? Devil and Satan. In Greek, devil or diabolos means the slanderer. And Satan or hasatan in the Hebrew means the adversary or opponent of God. And so in rebellion against God, in order to slander both God and his people, Satan attempts to deceive the nations, here noted as the whole world. To deceive, friends, means to cause people to wander from the true path, often just by small degrees, to wander from the true path. But when Christ came, he proclaimed and enacted the truth of God's kingdom and then inaugurated it through his death and resurrection. In doing so, Satan was bound and hindered in his deception of the world. Once the truth is present in the world, the gospel, now the deception is hindered. Maybe not completely taken away, but hindered. But what these three verses tell us in Revelation 12 is that even though he tries to deceive the nations, those under the care of God and his heavenly beings like Michael will not wander, will not be deceived because they are Christ's. And even more importantly, because of the work of Christ, Satan is no longer allowed a place amongst God's holy council to sit and slander his saints. This is good news, is it not? And so he is thrown down and he's attempting to deceive as he always has, but now because of the gospel, his deception is hindered and his slander of the saints is falling on deaf ears. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, your sin has been forgiven, and Satan can no longer slander you nor deceive you. God sees you through the blood of his Son and observes the repentance that is being worked out in your life, and he calls you his own. And this is why, unlike the Catholic Church, we don't need death and a papal declaration to make us saints. We are made holy in Christ. We are saints right now. And the rest of this life is simply living out that truth each day. Friends, many of you are working for salvation. We work from salvation. We work to live out the truth that is already established, which is you are made holy in the blood of Jesus. Well, John moves on. We next hear a song, a song of praise for all of this. And this song is the inaugurated victory of the perfect Exodus lamb and his saints. Because of this work that Satan has been thrown down, because he has been limited and bound, and because he no longer can slander God's people, a song of praise issues forth. 
about the inaugurated victory of the perfect Exodus lamb and his saints. Take a look there at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, the slanderer of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Now it has been the case throughout Revelation thus far that visions will occur such as with the lamb that was slain and then a song is given afterward to help interpret what has been seen. You can use that as you go back through Revelation. The song afterwards interprets the vision. And this is the case here as well. We are told who this voice is coming from. It is from the saints who are enrolled in heaven. How do we know this? Because notice that they're speaking of Satan as the accuser of our brethren, our brothers. Remember that this is an event outside of the timeline of earth. One of the problems with the left behind theology, as I've mentioned before, is that it tries too heavily to sync up the timeline that we exist in and the timeline God exists in. That's a problem. You know why? God doesn't exist in our timeline. That's us trying to control him as opposed to him being sovereign over us. And so because it's outside, it's not as connected as we might want it to be. It's a metaphysical miracle that we as Christians exist both here on earth, but have also been enrolled in heaven at the exact same time. And we see that this loud collective voice affirms our interpretation of the first three verses about the accuser of the saints being thrown down from his position of power in which he could slander God's people. And what was the event that caused this to happen? Well, notice the first verse tells us, the salvation, power, and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. This is speaking of nothing other than the cross and resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This language of God and his Christ, right? Uh, it says now the salvation of our God and the authority of his Christ, it says right there in verse 10, this language comes directly from Psalm 2, which we looked at in depth last week. This one piece I'll pull to put up on the screen there for you. Notice it has the exact same wording, against the Lord and against his anointed. In Hebrew, the wooden translation would be against Yahweh and against his Mashiach, or his Christ uh, is the Greek word, Christos. Okay? So it's the exact same wording when you work through the translations. Now, all of the imagery of Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You should know that if you've been here more than a few weeks. All of the imagery of Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen. When we take a book and we try to make it about events outside of Jesus Christ, we've missed the point. Let me give you some examples. The promise of redemption to Eve in the garden. The scepter that comes out of Judah. The one to hold the throne of David. The Savior that rules the nations with a rod of iron from Psalm 2. The Messiah and the suffering servant of Isaiah. The giant mountain that comes to crush the statue that symbolizes the nations of the world in Daniel. All of these, and so many more, were fulfilled in the moment that Christ died on behalf of sinful creation in order to redeem it in new life. Yet one more reason I don't like the left-behind theology. It's waiting for something to happen out there. Well, guys, everything's been fulfilled in Christ. That is the point of his church. There are still events to happen, praise God, the resurrection and judgment. But that is not what we are waiting for. That is not the victory we are waiting for. The victory has already occurred. Because it's this cross and enthronement, this gospel, that has thrown down the accuser of the brethren. What good news for all of us who are in Christ that we, the depraved and the broken, have been redeemed and will never again face the accusations of our own sin against us. Christ's work is finished, and therefore our redemption, in one sense, is also finished. It has been completed. And now, as I said earlier, the pursuit of holiness is to fully take on and accept this truth in our lives while we strive with endurance in the faith toward the glory to come. What good news! It's in this way that we can look at Satan and his attempts to accuse us that even creep up in our own minds through worldly shame. 
And we can say, as Christ did in the wilderness, away with you, Satan. You have no place in my life. Satan, you have been conquered. Don't you know that? Notice that it says they have conquered. Look at verse 11. The saints have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. This is all past tense. He has overcome. This was written in the first century, and he has overcome. Christ and his church have prevailed. And there are two weapons with which we have slain the ancient serpent. It says there first is the blood of the lamb. This is why Jesus must be pictured as a lamb that was slain and why he will maintain this identifying mark for all eternity future. It is by the blood of this lamb, this perfect Passover lamb, that we are now protected from the specter of death and eternal torment that it carries with it. This is the gospel preached throughout the new covenant. Here's an example. This is how Paul put it in Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That's Passover lamb language. Propitiation is a fancy word that means the act of making amends or to atone. We who were separated from God by the rebellious sin in which we remove God as the authority of our lives, by Christ we are brought back into relationship with him through this atoning sacrifice of Jesus' blood. Praise be to God for his glorious sacrifice. Friends, if you have not accepted that truth, that Jesus is the sacrifice and his blood is what cleanses you from your sin, today is the day to proclaim that and to walk in that truth. We as pastors would love to talk with you after the service about what that means. Well, the second weapon of our warfare listed here is the word of their testimony. Now, this should immediately call to mind chapter 11 and the two witnesses that symbolize the covenant people of God. This is the witness that we provide with both our lives of submission and our explicit verbal pronouncement that Christ has been enthroned and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Friends, when you go to preach the gospel, do you try to market it? Jesus has a plan for your life. That is true. Or do you state the truth that Jesus has been enthroned and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead? The church is Christ's New Testament prophetic witness, not because we foretell future events, but because we preach the gospel. The good news that is proclaimed at the beginning of this section that says the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, that is the good news that we proclaim. The gospel is not merely that Christ has saved me from my sin nor you from yours. This is absolutely at the heart and cannot be forsaken or minimized. But even this is part of the fuller package of the gospel, which is that the kingdom of God has been inaugurated and is coming in fullness. If you only have Jesus as Savior but not as King, you have not preached the true gospel. Now, this is our testimony that we even live out in our very lives. To say that Jesus saves me from my sins and I'm waiting for heaven so I can do whatever I want right now, that is a heresy. But to say that Jesus is my Savior who is also my Lord and he possesses lordship over my life by his word and his people, that is to walk out the gospel. The word testimony here that's used by the word of their testimony is the Greek word, which is the very word from which we take the word martyr. To testify is to die. And then it says, for they love not their lives even unto death. What an amazing motivational speech to incite the people of God across all times and locations to lay down our lives for the very proclamation and preaching of the fact that Christ was slain for our sin, but he is resurrected and enthroned in victory. Friends, to give our lives over to Christ has far more to do with surrendering our self-proclaimed authority to Christ as Lord and King than it does with assuming some ascetic monastic life in which we try to run away from the created world that God has given us. It's about laying down your own authority. Do you love not your life, even to the point of giving it over for the declaration of Christ as King? What might hold you back from that declaration? Is it worry about losing your job? Worry about losing relationships, 
Is it your fear of man? What's holding you back from laying down all your concerns in order to be the prophetic witness of Christ? In what ways do you still love your life so much that you think you should run it rather than surrendering it over and trust the one who has given his life for you? In what ways do you still love your life too much? Now, in these ways that we're thinking about it, this is more spiritual and metaphorical. But you also have to understand that there are other situations in which this is coming and will become even far more practical, too. For the first century Christians, to love not your own life literally meant being thrown to the lions or having your head cut off or thrown in prison. As the church grew in the first few hundred years and the canon of Scripture was solidified as what we know today as the Bible, the authorities of Rome decided that it was more trouble than it was worth to have this separate group of people with a separate authority other than Caesar. And so imperial authorities and, uh, and orders started to go out to take away and destroy any scripture that was found in the possession of Christians. The historian F.F. F. Bruce notes this. He says, quote, To hand over the sacred books, even when death was the penalty for noncompliance, was regarded as a serious offense, practically equivalent to apostasy, which means you got kicked out of the church. Those who handed over the scriptures were called traditores, which literally means handers over. It's the word from which we get traitors. A traitor is one who hands over the scripture, who does not stand firm on scripture because of fear. Friends, if the government or the world comes to us and tells us that we should disregard the teaching of the Bible and that there will be laws put in place that says we are hateful if we teach biblical truth, what will you do? What will you do? I know what I will do. What will you do if the world around you labels you as evil because you believe God instead of the wisdom of man? Friends, this is not some far off truth. This is today. And it's the battleground that's happening in the areas of defining the family, biblical sexuality, and God-given gender. As hate speech laws go into place and the world brands us as hateful for holding to biblical sexuality and God-given gender categories, and governments in places like Canada actually jail pastors for teaching basic scripture, this is not tomorrow. This is today. Are you prepared to love not your life to the point of being confronted on these topics? Because you go to a church where we, as your elders, do not love our lives so much that we will not stand firm on these topics? Or will you shrink back, as so many Christians are doing, going to the fray? Noticed yet another pop-up church in Salem went to their website. We believe the parts of the Bible that point us to Jesus, but a lot of the other stuff we throw out, especially on the topic of sexuality, because we are a gay-affirming church. Guys, it's happening all around us. The church is to be a place of love and care for everyone who comes in its doors, but it's also a place of reformation for every one of us that is a sinner, no matter the issue, so that we are reformed into the image of Christ. To preach that is becoming less and less popular. Now, the author of Hebrews uses this very question, will we stand firm or will we shrink away? Will we love our life or love not our life? He uses this same question to examine ourselves. This is Hebrews 10, 37 through 39. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Brothers and sisters, daily we must pray for the Lord's empowerment and courage to stand firmly in victory by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, so that we might not love our lives to protection, but rather to sacrifice in the name of Jesus Christ. And if we do this, if we rely upon the victory that has already been won, we will be able to rejoice with the heavenly host no matter what occurs here on earth. For we do not dwell just in this physical plane at this time, but we who are in Christ, we dwell with him in power in his heavenly kingdom. This is what the same author said in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. 
You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The second coming of Christ and the resurrection and judgment to follow will merely cement the victory from which we operate. But this victory from which we operate, as those who are enrolled as heaven dwellers, also has a flip side. We rejoice, but those who refuse God's grace and desire to dwell only on earth in their own authority have nothing but wrath to look forward to. For because of the work of Christ at Calvary, because he has been enthroned in the heavenlies, Satan is enraged, and his fury will be poured out on the very same people whom the cross has eternally secured in the love of God. You see, no one wins with Satan. Those who follow him definitely don't win. And those who are against him, those who are in Christ, he hates with a satanic fury. He knows that his time is short because that ancient serpent that has deceived the nations for the many eons of human existence, he knows that his deception has an expiration date. That time is short, not in terms of quantity of time, but in terms of assurance. Satan knows that there will be a point where he will be summarily stopped from any interaction with God's creation. What a wondrous and joyful day that will be. So now we come to the end of the second vantage point or angle on this same story as Genesis, or excuse me, as Revelation 12, 1 through 6. And we see it now from one last vantage point in verses 13 through 17, where what we will see is that we are protected even amidst the temper tantrum response of a vanquished adversary. We are protected even amidst the temper tantrum response of a vanquished adversary. I'll read verses 13 through 17 while you're writing down my overly wordy header. (laughs) And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Well, this is where the Exodus imagery comes through full strength. We had it a lot in verses 1 through 6. We had it somewhat in the center section. Uh, But here, we start to see this idea of the warfare of Pharaoh's army, also pictured with a serpent, as we saw last week. And the images of the blood and the Passover lamb and the word of Moses' and Aaron's testimony comes through in the second place. They come through in the idea of speaking this prophetic witness to Pharaoh in spite of great persecution. These are all images that are used to call to mind the Exodus. The Exodus was the seminal event for the Israelites and really for all of God's people. It was the calling out of a people from the pagan nations so that they might be devoted to the worship of God and sit under his lordship. His law was given through an intermediary and a sacrifice was instituted, all because of the Exodus. Now, the Gospels picture Christ as the better Moses, the better sacrifice. The Gospels picture him as the perfect intermediary, the perfect sacrifice, and the perfect Lord. The Gospel, according to Matthew, pictures Christ as giving his called-out people a new law upon the Sermon on the Mount, the law of liberty, the law of his love. And by the end of Matthew, his disciples are sent to bring his people through the water of baptism, just as the Israelites came through the water of the Red Sea. The church then is to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded them as his disciples. Now, these are not just separate moralistic stories, the Gospels and the Exodus, but it's all interwoven imagery that God foreordained to provide a picture of the Exodus. And in that picture, he would provide for all mankind this idea of what Christ would accomplish. By Christ's cross and resurrection and the enthronement over his people, the church, Christ has initiated the perfect Exodus the perfect exit out of the pagan nations, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. From the kingdom that embraces sin, 
he has brought us into the kingdom ruled in righteousness. And just as Moses and his people initiated the exodus and were met with the tantrum and the fury of whiny Pharaoh in hot pursuit, the inauguration of the kingdom at the resurrection of Christ has initiated the greatest exodus of all and therefore the greatest temper tantrum of all. But it too, this exodus, is met with a fury from the head of the kingdom from which we have been freed. Now it begins with a connection to the first two recapitulated views of chapter 12. It uses the imagery of the dragon and the woman and the, the childbirth. But then it starts to use rescue imagery straight out of the exodus story. God's people here are pictured as being given two wings of the great eagle so that we might be taken into the wilderness to be nourished for a set time. Now, it's not talking about great eagle powers from Nacho Libre, right? This is, this is imagery. I love it. Yeah. It's not a lie, Stephen. This is imagery from the Old Testament. Think of Mount Sinai. Now that I've got all of you thinking about Nacho Libre, think about Sinai. As Israel encamped there before the mountain, the Lord called Moses up and said to them, in Exodus 19, notice the similar Im imagery, the Lord called to Moses out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This same language of a kingdom of priests has been used throughout Revelation to describe the full people of God, the church, old and new covenant, Jew and Gentile. But it was the same manner of rescue that God has saved us and ransomed us from the kingdom of darkness as he did in that first exodus. And the nourishment provided to the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings is described here in Revelation 12 and described further in Deuteronomy 32. Look at, again, the same imagery. This is Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 14. He found him in a desert land, Jacob, speaking of Israel, and in the howling waste of the wilderness. God encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest. It flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. He made him, Israel, ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of the wheat, and he drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grapes." speaks of the nourishment of God in the midst of the wilderness. Now, we as the new covenant people of God, we are nourished as well to this same level. We are nourished in God's word, in his spirit, among his people. Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, and his word spoken over us is our nourishment. And like Israel, we will have a set time where we come out of the wilderness this is referred to here in our text as the time and times and half a time. This is also taken directly out of Daniel as the angel instructs Daniel on what the end of days will entail. John is using the same language in Revelation to state clearly that there will come a time, that set time of expiration that Satan knows is coming, at which things will be brought to a close in the judgment at the hands of Christ. And as I've asked you throughout Revelation, are you prepared for that day? The time in between, the time in which we now reside, known as the church age, is a time of wilderness wandering, like our spiritual ancestors. But remember that the wilderness is both a place of trial and protection. It is a place of trial because Satan will tempt us with the harsh environment we find ourselves, as he did Christ, to lay down our loyalty and allegiance to the Father. And we see this as we encounter suffering and chaos throughout the world in each of our lives. But the wilderness is also a place of protection. For just as Israel was protected from the idolatry that raged around them, as long as they held one another to account under the lordship of Christ, or of God, we too are among the world, but not of the world, as Christ keeps our faith secure in the covenant people of God. Now amidst this security, just as with Israel, we will face our trials, just as the earthly church did. 
Then the serpent will try to overcome us. He will try to pour over us like a military flood. This is already pictured already in Revelation as satanic troops that become like locusts. Now, the imagery of water and a river, a flood, works well with the Exodus idea as we picture Pharaoh and his troops bearing down upon the vulnerable people of Israel as the slowest and weakest of them finished crossing through the Red Sea opening. To the Israelites looking over their shoulder, this imagery of a coming flood would seem very accurate. But it's actually the Lord who has the power of bringing a flood. It is the Lord who has the power to hold back the waters. And Satan's furious attempts will ultimately come to nothing. But that does not keep him from trying. And the imagery that is used is that the attack, it will come from his mouth. Recall that throughout Revelation, things coming from the mouth are pictures of weaponry. The sword from the mouth of Christ. The fire from the mouths of the two witnesses. The sulfur from the mouths of the demonic troops of chapter 9. And here Satan is attempting to harm God's covenant people with the deception that comes from his mouth. For the first century saints, who, as we saw in, the, in chapters 2 and 3, had among their number rebellious false teachers, John noted them as those proclaiming to be Jews, be of the people of God, but they are not. It was these Christians in name only that polluted the truth of God's word and led the people astray. And unfortunately, Christendom of 2022 has a similar problem as false teachers sow hypocrisy and errant ideas and goofy TED Talk motivational speeches into the mainstream church. For many then and now, this idea of false teachers is a fearful thing. But for those who immerse themselves in truth and search after wisdom in God's word and the orthodoxy of church history, those who stand firmly will not be overcome. John makes this clear by using imagery from the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who in the wilderness wanderings rebelled against God's leader, Moses, and proclaimed that they, not he, should be leading those people. Do you remember what happened to them? The end of that rebellion was the same as what is pictured here in Revelation. Notice the wording and the warning and in the result as we read from Revelation here. It says, then the dragon became furious. Oh, excuse me, verse 16. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Take a look at the same story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram's rebellion in Numbers 16. He spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away. Notice the wording, flood, swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord if these men die as all men die. Or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, that's gospel language right there, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, then they go down alive into Sheol. Then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. John uses similar imagery and recalls to mind this story to warn any who would be caught up in the flood of deception that comes from Satan through false teachers in the church but also to empower the church with the knowledge of the end that is ordained for Satan. He will be destroyed. Now, we do not know completely, and there is no consensus on what John means that Satan the dragon goes off to then make war in Revelation with the rest of the woman's offspring. But the following two lines give us an idea, though. Notice what it says there, verse uh, 17 of Revelation 12. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This idea that he's going off to make war against those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus means, dear friends, if that describes you and you are in Christ, that he is at war with you. And if you are in Christ, that means that you are most likely going to run into persecution, attempted deception, and various trials and suffering meant to overwhelm you. But the picture that comes through loud and clear through these three angles of spiritual warfare that we've seen in chapter 12, through this idea of the warfare that the church faces, is that we are the protected people of the Exodus God. In other words, you have nothing to fear. Stand firm and trust in the sovereignty of God, no matter what comes. The words of the old hymn ring true. 
Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control us that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for our souls. Press forward, dear friends, with the knowledge that your names are written in heaven and that you are amongst the people that strive to keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And when you grow tired and weary in the midst of trials of life, remember the words we began with today and the idea of God's nourishment upon which John sets the theme of the church age. From Isaiah it says, Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Pursue Christ. Pursue his word. And pursue his people. Do not be overcome by the flood that wants to take you away. He will renew your strength in the midst of a difficult and chaotic world because you are part of the protected people of the Exodus God. Amen? Amen. Amen.